Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Matthew Jones. He's a historian of science and technology and the James R. Barker Professor of Contemporary Civilization at Columbia University, who is completing a book on computing and state surveillance of communications. I've been asking myself how my personal data, my credit card information that I use to buy things online, or what I happen to be watching on Netflix last night, is connected with my rights as a citizen. What rights do I have? And what rights should I have? What's an annoyance when Amazon is recommending something or Netflix is suggesting a movie you've seen and hated is very different in a law enforcement or national security realm. If you pick out someone wrong, you have a false positive. In both cases, what they're doing is leveraging vast amount of social data, both to create records on us and to create the kinds of profiling that enables to divide up different sorts of people and then make predictions about their activities, about their purchasing habits, about their value as a customer, and perhaps the dangers they might pose to a community. So we have to think a lot about both what commercial and governmental organizations can do with these analytic technologies. And we need collectively to have ever greater literacy in what it is that's possible, but also the dangers of it. We'll be talking about the Fourth Amendment, which provides the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures, and how this relates to data collection on the internet, privacy, data literacy, and the complex ethical, technological, and political elements at play. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. Oh, great. I'm uh, glad to be here. What is big data? So big data means data that has two facets. On the one hand, it's a lot of observations of something, say millions of people going through a subway turnstile or millions of people making transactions on Amazon or looking at movies at Netflix and that sort of thing. But it also typically means lots of detail about that person. So if you were to look at, say, a record about you from a major corporation, it would be many, many thousands of observations of everything you've looked at or everything you've purchased, the things you've chosen not to purchase. So it's big both in that it's observations about lots of things and it's detailed observations. Some people say it's granular. It's not just, say, your height and your weight, but very detailed things that might be linked to where you are, to the time of day you do things. So it has a richness that's quite unlike what we typically would think of, of older style statistical data. And it presents great possibilities, it presents great challenges for scientists and technologists, and it presents real perils that we'll probably talk about today. So when you say granular data, how can you qualify granular into social? And how can we think about that? Because it's essentially intimate information about us. It's profoundly intimate, and it's more intimate by virtue of being social. And what I mean by that is, say you've chosen to not participate in Facebook, or you've chosen to exclude yourself from a lot of data collection things. Nonetheless, 
many things your friends do or people are associated with you are going to mark you or link to you. So our profiles are not just the things we do, but everything other people do about us, all of our interactions. So if someone is tagging you in photos, even if you've not opted into a particular service, you're nonetheless brought in through those social interactions into databases and the systems and analyze them. And increasingly, as we have automated technologies that recognize us, which could recognize our voices, recognize our faces, other sorts of things, services are going to be able to identify us through our interactions with other sorts of people. And that's much of the controversy that's happened around questions of uh, government surveillance in the intelligence world, but also increasingly the way in which large platforms use the data they have made by us and made by others concerning us. You talked about surveillance just now, and you basically use the Fourth Amendment to reveal the problems with data collection at this scale, both for our national security, but also for our private lives. And it gives us an idea on how to think about the ethics around data. Why is this an essential part about our thoughts on data? So one of the tricky things is that in, in thinking about the ethical and political ramifications of data, we have to become more technologically literate about what the possibilities are of data. We need to become more imaginative the way technologists are. The Fourth Amendment has typically been treated in a kind of individualistic way. So it's a question of whether the government needs a warrant just to look at the phone numbers you're dialing on your phone. And in the middle of the 1970s, the Supreme Court ruled that the government needed a warrant to listen in on your conversations, but needed something less demanding, it only to capture your individual phone numbers. This was a private sort of right. That precedent becomes the basis for the legal analysis of why it might be legitimate to collect all of our dialing information, something that happened in various ways after 9-11. Variety of courts, particularly the secret court that's associated with the use of surveillance technologies of people in the United States, said that the Fourth Amendment is a personal right, that if something is legal to be done to one person, the fact that it's being done to millions of people doesn't really change the analysis. But when things become social and granular, it becomes very invasive of our privacy in a way that the courts really didn't see. The courts are not the only one. Many institutions have struggled with what has to happen once you have the combination of really large-scale data and analytic technologies that can make sense of them. Because all of a sudden, things that might have been innocuous when they weren't done at scale become in intensely uh, invasive of our privacy. And because they're invasive of their privacy, in some cases, they enable us to do something. When Gmail offers you suggestions about your misspellings or suggestions of emails, it's drawing upon a vast database of personal communications. And we have given permission for Google to do that. So we collectively need to think differently about what are the limits we might want to place on this, both for our own privacy and those of other people, including the, the least advantaged. So then how should we think about it? It's a good question you actually sort of pointed in the way we should think about it. We need to understand the way in which the whole collective of organizations and peoples and automatic sensors that are collecting data on us and compiling that into various extremely dense records about our activities, that is going to enable various kinds of predictive activities about us. 
about where we're going, what our ordinary course of life, the things we might want to purchase and not. And we all know this technology is deeply, deeply flawed. But what's an annoyance when Amazon is recommending something or Netflix is suggesting a movie you've seen and hated is very different in a law enforcement or national security realm. If you pick out someone wrong, you have a false positive. In both cases, what they're doing is leveraging vast amount of social data, both to create records on us and to create the kinds of profiling that enables to divide up different sorts of people and then make predictions about their activities, about their purchasing habits, about their value as a customer, and perhaps the dangers they might pose to a community. So we have to think a lot about both what commercial and governmental organizations can do with these analytic technologies. And we need collectively to have ever greater literacy in what it is that's possible, but also the dangers of it. 25 years ago, it was pretty important if you were a citizen to be able to read bar charts and have basic ideas of some statistical measures. We now, in some sense, need a different kind of literacy in which it's a literacy about the potentiality of building things with large-scale data. And when we do that, we think about a whole range of things, about business practices, about privacy, about the Fourth Amendment in the United States, and then above all, what it means when we are constantly agreeing to let our data be collected and used, which we do you know, every time we run an app on our phone, every time we browse. And we're constantly at once reminded of this because we're clicking OK. And almost never are we going to try to parse some arcane privacy policy usually designed for us not to be able to figure out what is going on. Right. Yes, exactly. Uh, it's tiny print right. and super long. And <laughs> in, in light gray. <laughs> so when it comes to literacy, how can we actually get there? Because like you just said, with the apps, we agree. Uh, we don't read it. It's not really designed to be understood. But actually, we need much more than reading our privacy agreements to gain proper literacy and to engage in a collective conversation about what we want the data to do for us. Right. So, I, you know, there's a lot of layers of this. On the one hand, you have what is it that people ought to be telling us when we're agreeing to something? Is there a way that isn't as deliberately obfuscatory as many of these interactions we have with services that really want us to simply agree or to opt in. You know, you reinstall Windows on a, on a computer and it says, wouldn't it be great if you just accepted all these default options and get going? On the other side, there's a question of what do we need to know? I gave the example a little bit earlier about statistical literacy. Well, we all know loads of people don't have basic statistical or numerical literacy. So now we're asking for something more substantial, something that involves, on the one hand, a greater understanding of what data is and how it's collected, all of the various places and things that do this collection, whether it be here in New York City, you know, you have free Wi-Fi hotspots all over the city, which are data collection engines and are therefore supposedly free. So it involves understanding the way in which that entire family of algorithms draws in precisely the way you had suggested, on detailed information about each of us and our interactions with others in order to make generalizations and then specific predictions about us. So what we need, in other words, is a consciousness of the way in which 
everyday, apparently trivial interactions that we have long been confident don't really matter, now in the aggregate matter profoundly. So we need newer forms of transparency and we need ways of understanding a sense of the power that enables us to do so many things. Using technology has really changed the game about what people know about us and can predict about us. And therefore, we need to collectively have uh, decisions about, on the one hand, the collection of data, but also the extent to which different forms of analyses are allowed and are disallowed by different kinds of actors. So these are not easy questions. And how to do that in practice is a really challenging one. The question of everyday education of citizens and residents, that's probably even harder not to crack because we, there are so many things we don't know well about how to do technical education because it involves both a technological element, a political element, and an ethical element, and all of those thinking beyond a kind of narrow individualist interest to the way that the social impinges on our individual choices. So you're a historian, and I actually was a history major myself in college, and I love to think about where we are today in the context of how we arrived here. And I wonder what your scholarship has been able to show you in terms of what the possible avenues are for us to go forward in terms of how we can approach this as a social problem as opposed to a technical problem. Perhaps the most fundamental thing that someone like me, a historian of technology, says is that it ain't necessarily so. Often when we're talking about technologies, they seem inevitable. We use a term of art, which is technological determinism. And what that means is a vision of history in which it's technology leading the way that it's impossible to stop. So once someone creates a new kind of way of processing cotton, that that's going to transform all of agriculture. It's going to change the slave economy of the United States. It's going to do all these things. And similarly, many people made claims that the internet was such a thing. And that accords with a lot of our everyday experience. It does seem that these technologies, which get labeled disruptive to capture this phenomenon, are not something that we can contest. Well, it's not the way that technology is developed. So in the very early days of the World Wide Web, in the Stone Ages of the 1990s, it wasn't really clear what the web was going to be useful for. And it was really unclear how it was going to be helpful in commerce and what how it was going to be involved in news. You didn't have Google. No one knew what search engines were going to be like. There was a kind of crisis moment. People were putting up all kinds of information. No one had any idea of how it was financially going to scale. Now, a set of solutions emerged, and those solutions are ones that we are now ever more familiar with. They involved the detailed tracking of us, and they involved business models which were based on that tracking. In the course of just a few years, we came ever more to accept a model for so much of the internet, which is 
advertising services based on surveillance of users' everyday interactions. And there's really interesting anecdotes that even with the introduction of Gmail, it was unclear whether that was going to be involved in this kind of surveillance economy or was going to be a different business model altogether. Now, most people who think about this think that that's inevitable, that this is how the web had to develop. And it's not at all the case. The web has standards built into them that are generally not used in which we could have had microtransactions. And there were technological developments in the 1990s that would have made cash transactions largely anonymous in ways that could have been bad. You could have used them for terrorist and criminal financing, but also meant that people couldn't constantly track you. And that didn't happen for a lot of reasons. So as a historian, we're interested in the ways in which, in fact, these decisions were made, often without people being conscious. So when a Mark Zuckerberg made a lot of bold statements a few years ago about our expectations of privacy being killed by technological transformation, that young people simply didn't have the expectations that Generation X or boomers or other sorts of people. Now, on the one hand, this was not very good sociology, but more importantly, it it's a kind of technological determinist narrative. It's a narrative that says because the technology changes, people's expectations change. And that's just not true. This is actually a, a profoundly applied form of history. It reminds us that these choices were made. These are political and ethical choices. And many of these choices weren't always made consciously, and some of them were. So people will say, you know, if you try to do anything in the realm of thinking more critically about data or about algorithms, you're going to end up stifling much of what has been most distinctive about the American and the global economy in the last 25 years. But it's not at all clear that that's really true. But a lot of people are invested in saying that. Given the technological transformations, it's unquestionable that we have to think hard about how do things like search and seizure law apply to our phones or to our email. That was done. But it was often done in a framework that was not completely honest, that the technology doesn't tell you what you have to do that there's no modernization that has to happen because of technological transformation. It's rather that we need to collectively sit down, think about what has to happen with the technology, what doesn't have to happen with the technology, and come up with solutions that are expressive of those collective values that we share. And right now is a very interesting moment because there has been a heightening of concern about data and algorithms. Right now there's several municipalities in the United States that are very concerned about facial recognition and saying it seems to everyone that this is the future, that there's no way to push it back. A number of municipalities are saying, no, actually, we think that this would be a very problematic tool, particularly for law enforcement to have. A lot of people are saying, wait a second, is this really what we want? We know all the dystopian science fiction novels already tell us what's going to happen, but they also treat it as inevitable. Perhaps it's not inevitable. And that's a really interesting moment in our conversation. Coming back to the question of me as a historian, what historians do is to say, look, here's the conditions under which something emerged. And here's all the moments where something could have been different. In 1974, the United States almost had legislation that provided general data protection. So today, Europe has a much stronger legislative 
program around the protection of data. And it's seen as a European model against an American model that's more focused on innovation. But in 1974, there was a bipartisan consensus in the world of Watergate and, and a whole bunch of scandals around spies that maybe we should be very careful with both government collection of data and private collection of data. This legislation actually had huge traction on both sides of the aisle in a way that seems odd from our current standpoint. But in the end of the day, the restrictions on data use were applied only to the federal government and not to any commercial actors. So it's a moment in which there wasn't an obvious course in U.S. history. There was a a real transition point, and we can understand the interests that were involved and the decisions that were involved, probably the money that was exchanged, but also really dramatically different principles of how we understand economic development that were discussed at that point, and a decision was made. And it has really dramatically mattered for the development of the kind of particular form of capitalism based on the recording of our everyday activities, which we are very much caught in today. So what can everyday people do about this? Because it's great that some municipalities are saying we don't want facial recognition software, we don't want to do this to our people, but if you're average person using Facebook on your phone or Gmail as your electronic mail provider, what can you do? Well, I mean, at a most basic level, there's a kind of awareness that when we put up information, particularly information about other sorts of people, we may be contributing to, in some cases, putting them into the crosshairs of various agencies. So what we choose to post really matters. And there's no question parents have become quite aware of how easy it has been for anyone to create a profile of their children based on what they publicly post on Facebook or Twitter, this sort of thing. And people have become more acutely aware that that is going to follow our children over generations. But ultimately, the solutions to this are not going to be questions of individual consumer judgment. It's not that we are going to say boycott something. We need more dramatic social and political transformation. So as individuals, I think that means that we work in interaction with both governance at at every level, state, local, and federal, and to encourage the kind of people who are going to be more reflective about the pluses and minuses of these technologies, the the kinds of people who are going to be willing not, as it were, to be sort of Pollyannish about the fact that you can't have any of these technologies. Why would you do that? Why would you want social networking? But rather are willing to think hard about all the options that are going to matter from transforming the way corporations are governed and who it is that they're responsible to, to other forms of maybe older style regulation to questions about antitrust. We need to be calling on all of our political actors to be uh, much more conscious of this. And then we can be more involved with those corporations that do express a greater concern with privacy. So Apple has very much doubled down on this, that part of their distinctiveness as a corporation, at least in in the democracies, it's different in, in the PRC in China, as is following a very different model than most of the large internet firms, which are premised on the use of our data. And Apple has a double and triple down on protection of data as something that's distinctive about its business model. They are creating devices that have created real challenges for law enforcement and spies around the world. So we will have 
a series of political choices, choices as consumers, and then ultimately we have a collective issue of how is it that we're going to get the forms of education we were just discussing about? How is it that we are knowledgeable citizens that aren't going to buy sort of simple narratives that if we were to push back at all against this, that if we were to say, you know, we really don't think it's okay that two companies that we consented to giving data to get together and combine sort of radically different data sets to profile us in ways that are uncomfortable to us, that that might be something we really collectively want to push again, and that we ought to do so. That when we, you know, submitted a genetic sample to a corporation because we're interested in our ancestry, we might not want that to be used for all kinds of purposes. So we, we do have a place for us to act as citizens and consumers, but we can't do it without having a larger picture of how the transformations are going to have to happen at at larger political levels, and those political levels are going to have to be at all of these places, which is why it's so interesting that you have municipalities like San Francisco and Somerville, Massachusetts, that have been leading the way on some of these things, because local politics, it wouldn't seem like a place where this could matter, but in fact it does. And we're seeing it in ways that, in some sense, will cross the divide, the partisan divide that's so prominent right now in the United States, because there's good civil libertarian reasons to be concerned about these technologies that are shared by a large number of people. So there'll be the ever greater need to form coalitions of that kind. So this legislation I mentioned in 1974 was bipartisan, and it involved Barry Goldwater, who we tend to think of as the sort of most conservative, you know, the forerunner of the politics of the Reagan revolution forward. But he approached this as a civil libertarian in alliance with a bunch of people who are seen very much on the left. Collectively, we're going to have to think about a lot of that, those, those kinds of alliances in shaping a world that enables all kinds of services to leverage data about us and to use algorithms, but in ways that contribute to the set of values that we really have, and not only to, say, certain kinds of corporate bottom lines or very narrow conceptions of, say, national security. We've basically just been talking about more or less the problems, the current problems as we perceive them right now. Right. But there are good things, and you alluded to that at the very beginning. So what are the good things in your mind if you think about the future and this technology? What's really the promise? I, I like to think of it in two sort of ways, and they're associated with the different kinds of technologies that um, are driving a, a lot of these systems that analyze data. And one of the sets of technologies takes existing human expertise and learns to model it, and then can apply it in tremendous scale. So Google is a great example of this. So Google solved in some level this problem of search. So there's there this anarchical web where no one knew where things were in, in the 1990s. And Google's solution was to say, let's build a search engine which leverages human decision-making about what content is worthwhile. 
And so it did that at huge scale, constantly say humans are saying this matters and this not. Now, this can be gamed in a million ways, and Google is constantly fighting that. But the idea is you take human judgments, you learn to model them, and then you can apply them to a large number of things. Already in certain fields, things like medical clinical judgment can be done at much greater scale by this. And this is worrisome because if you're making automatic decisions about recommending movies, it's not very fraught. If you're making automatic decisions about who lives or dies or what kind of strategy, it is ethically wrong. But as the technologies develop, we can do more with all kinds of the sensory data that really matters to us as human beings. That is natural language about questions of communication, but also visual language. The current class of algorithms and the kind of hardware they run on are increasingly able to do remarkable things with visual data. This can be used for facial recognition. It can be used to recognize your gait. But that's not all it can be used for. And so there's a whole realm of everyday activity that can enable us as human beings to do more by leveraging human expertise. Now, the second kind of analysis, so the first one, you, you use other people's, you use human expertise and you automate it in some radical way. And the other way is are there ways of analyzing data that come up with things that we've never seen before? Say, let's look at social scientific data about how people are voting in an election. One of the data analysts who worked for Obama wrote I think, in the New York Times that we no longer have to only think in terms of these kind of crude categories, NASCAR dads, these other sorts of things. But we could take the data and say, are there other groupings that are really salient? Are the things we're not seeing? Are there people who have greater similarity that we're missing? Well, that kind of analysis where you're taking vast amounts of data and you're looking for connections that people have not seen can lead you to the potential, particularly in the medical field, that we're going to discover that if we're looking at the genetic and epigenetic bases of a lot of diseases, that it's less relevant the color of our skin than very specific things in our genetic makeup that are badly captured by men and women or black and white or growing up in a particular environment, but rather might connect groups of humans that need different kinds of therapies. This, is, this goes under the name precision medicine. Um, but it is one of the great endeavors that there are very specific classes of genetic and epigenetic phenomena which can be identified and then treated. And so that's the sort of thing that's enormously exciting. And we shouldn't let anyone ever tell us that, oh, well, the political process is too slow to make decisions because these things matter too much and they impact our lives in too dramatic a way not to do that. That's a fantastic context. So here's my last question. You've been teaching undergraduates a class called Data, Past, Present, and Future. And in light of having taught this class around young people looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? So a couple of weeks ago, it was near the end of the semester, and everyone gets tired at the end of the semester. And uh, I thought, well, you know what? This might be a wonderful opportunity for the students to think about what they've been doing all semester and work together. And one thing often in the academy we don't do enough of, particularly with undergraduates, is get them to work together when they have various sorts of competencies. And so I gave them what might seem like a kind of cheeky assignment, but actually was really revealing. So I said, your group, you're going to be a thinkfluencer on writing on Twitter. And what you have to do, take an article that's been published in the last four days or so that's about a concern about something with data, 
a concern or really excitement. And what you, we want, what your assignment to do as a group is to write a tweet storm. That's a series of like 10 tweets for those of you who stay off that platform in which you do a bunch of different things. You have a clickbaity title to bring people in, but then you do all the sorts of things that are possible on a social media platform. So the students had to, you know, add memes and funny jokes, but they also needed to link to things that would make you think hard about what the implications of this were. So for an example, I think the day before this assignment, there was a story that was running in a lot of newspapers about how Uh, The airline JetBlue had surprised international customers by having automated check-in using face recognition. So this is sort of disconcerting. Well, how do you understand this? So the students wrote this wonderful series of tweets, including sort of very funny memes about, you know, being surprised by this, but also doing very deep dives into the fact that most facial recognition technologies, for example, are far better at identifying correctly white and East Asian people than black and Hispanic people. And there's been a big debate about this. Like, do you want to correct that? Is it good? And so they linked to this. The students then talked about more broad social issues. They talked about these municipalities before coming back to a joke. Now, why do I bring this up? Because the students were writing in an idiom that could reach out to a lot of people, drawing on their full sets of competencies. When I write as a professor in my academic mode, we tend to write for each other. We don't write for the general public. But our students are there. They were such naturals at doing this because they live in a world of social media. But what they did was take something that really mattered, underscore how it matters, and then provide people connections to deepening what to know about it in a political way, what to know about it in a technical way, and to think concretely about how you would go about producing solutions. If you followed their tweet storm, all of a sudden you had this sort of deep dive that was fun all along the way, uh, was interesting all along the way, but that was also disconcerting all along the way. So it was profoundly informative, but in a way that could communicate to other sorts of people. And so our course was precisely about giving people kinds of political literacy, technical literacy, but also a rhetorical literacy, because we have to communicate with each other. So you've rightly pressed me about these incredibly hard questions of what do we do as individual citizens? How do we even inform individual citizens? But what we certainly have to do is communicate in ways that are intelligible and meaningful to individual citizens, that take people's values where they are, that takes their existing knowledge and says, look, I want to meet you there, and I want to talk about these things that really should matter to you. And I'm going to talk to you in a way that's never talking down to you, that these are a serious conversation we have to have, and it's going to have serious political and commercial effects. So that was a sort of amusing moment, but it built upon a whole rich way in which we wanted students to think always about how collecting data and analyzing data from the Uh, 18th century to the present has always been political, meaning that it's always changed who is powerful. It enables certain sorts of things and enables many, many extraordinary, wonderful things. Like you can't have powerful public health programs without understanding disease. 
But it also means that you can have powerful institutions, commercial and state, that can work against the interests, uh, particularly of the least privileged. So we wanted students to constantly see how that's worked in history before jumping to our current moment, to understanding what that is, and then being prepared to communicate about it. Um, and so I was enormously delighted by the fact that they could write both proper academic papers uh, that most of your readership probably all remembers writing, and uh, a tweet storm that did this in the most intellectually rigorous, but also sort of rhetorically brilliant way. Thank you. That's totally amazing. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. I was definitely one of those people who believed in technological determinism. I had never considered that choices were made in the 1990s that led to the business model of tracking us and monetizing our private information. When I think about it, of course it's obvious that decisions were made to get here. But it's this precisely that Matt was talking about when he said, decisions are made without people being conscious. Although the promise of precision medicine is pretty cool, what's really exciting is that a dystopian future is not, in fact, inevitable. Now that we are starting to have a consciousness about our data, our privacy, and our rights, we have an opportunity to choose to engage politicians and activists to have our values reflected in the way our data is collected. It may take time, to gain the transparency that we deserve, to find effective ways to educate the public in data literacy, but I am hopeful that we are no longer unwitting and blind consenters when we agree to share our data online. Next week, our guest is Ezra Levin. He's the co-executive director of Indivisible, which aims to cultivate a grassroots movement to elect progressive leaders realize bold progressive policies, and rebuild our democracy. His book, We Are Indivisible, A Blueprint for Democracy After Trump, will be out in November. We'll be talking about the structural issues of American elections, eliminating the filibuster, and what the stakes are in preserving and strengthening our democracy. We see at Indivisible another possibility of changing American democracy so it doesn't just have the same 18th and 19th century structural elements that it's had for so many years, that it actually is reformed to reflect the will of the people. And by the people, we mean all the people, this changing electorate. And we see that being possible as soon as 2021. We see the potential of having progressives in charge of the House, the Senate, and the presidency. We see the opportunity to change how the Supreme Court works, how the Senate works, how many states we have in the union, how representative our elections are, how responsive overall these institutions are to the people. That's all within our reach. It's not guaranteed, but it's possible. But that's the democracy we want to build. Until next time, I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Tsumbu. Find us online at futurehindsight.com and listen to us through your favorite streaming services. Mm-hmm.